Chapter Three of the Iron Horse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Iron Horse by Robert Michael Ballantine. Chapter Three in which the widow holds converse with a captain makes the acquaintance of a young man and receives a telegraphic shock which ends in a railway journey mrs captain tibbs was as we have said a thin old lady of an excessively timid temperament she was also as we have shown, impulsively kind in disposition. Moreover, she was bird-like in aspect and action. We would not have it supposed, however, that her features were sharp. On the contrary, they were neat and rounded and well-formed, telling of great beauty in youth but her little face and mouth were of such a form that one was led irresistibly to expect to hear her chirp she fluttered rather than walked and twittered rather than talked altogether she was a charming little old lady with a pair of bead-like eyes as black as sloes happy that captain a sea captain by the way long since dead round whom she had fluttered in days gone by and happy that son joseph round whom when at home she fluttered now but joseph was not often at home at the time we write of he was an honest soul a gentle affectionate man with a handsome face neat dapper little frame something like his mother in many ways yet not unmanly he was too earnest simple unassuming and unaffected to be that he was a railway clerk and had recently been appointed to langrie station about fifty miles from clatterby which necessitated his leaving his mother's roof but mrs tipps consoled herself with the intention of giving up her little villa and going to live at langrie poverty after the captain's death had seized upon the widow and held her tightly during the whole of that period when joseph and his only sister netta were being educated but mrs tipps did her duty bravely by them she was a practically religious woman and tried most earnestly to rule her life in accordance with the blessed word of god she trained up her children in the way that they should go in thorough reliance on the promise that they would not depart from it 
when they were old. She accepted the command, Owe no man anything but to love one another, as given to herself as well as to the world at large. Hence she kept out of debt and was noted for deeds of kindness wherever she went. But she was pinched during this period, terribly pinched. No one knew how severely, save her daughter Netta, to whom she had been in the habit of confiding all her joys and sorrows from the time that the child could form any conception of what joy or sorrow meant. But Mrs. Tipps did not weep over her sorrows, neither did she become boisterous over her joys. She was an equable, well-balanced woman in everything except the little matter of her nervous system. Netta was a counterpart of her mother. As times went on, expenses increased, and living on small means became more difficult, so that Mrs. Tipps was compelled to contemplate leaving the villa, poor and small though it was, and taking a cheaper residence. At this juncture, a certain Captain Lee, an old friend of her late husband, also a sea captain, an extremely gruff one, called upon the widow, found out her straitened circumstances, and instantly offered her five hundred pounds, which she politely but firmly refused. But, madam, said the excitable captain on that memorable occasion, I must insist on your taking it. Excuse me, I have my own reasons, and they are extremely good ones, for saying that it is my duty to give you this sum and yours to take it. I owe it to your late husband, who more than once laid me under obligations to him. Mrs. Tipps shook her little head and smiled. You are very kind, Captain Lee, to put it in that way, and I have no doubt that my dear husband did, as you say, lay you under many obligations, because he was always very kind to everyone. But I cannot, I assure you. Very well, interrupted the captain, wiping his bald head with his pocket-handkerchief angrily. Then the money shall go to some charity, some some ridiculous asylum or hospital for teaching logarithms to the Hottentots of the Cape or something of that sort. I tell you, madam, he added with increased vehemence, seeing that Mrs. Tipps still shook her head, I tell you that I robbed your husband of five hundred pounds. Robbed him? exclaimed Mrs. Tipps, somewhat shocked. Oh, Captain Lee, impossible! Yes, I did, replied the captain, crossing his arms and nodding his head firmly. Robbed him. I laid a bet with him to that extent and won it. That is not usually considered robbery, Captain Lee, said Mrs. Tipps with a smile. But that ought to be considered robbery, replied the captain with a frown. 
betting is a mean shabby contemptible way of obtaining money for nothing on false pretenses the man who bets says in his heart i want my friend's money without the trouble of working for it therefore i'll offer to bet with him in so doing i'll risk an equal sum of my own money that's fair and honorable is that logic demanded the captain vehemently it is not in the first place it is mean to want not to speak of accepting another man's money without working for it and it is a false pretense to say that you risk your own money because it's not your own it is your wife's and your children's money who are brought to poverty mayhap because of your betting tendencies and it is your baker's and butcher's money whose bread and meat you devour as long as they'll let you without paying for it because of your betting tendencies and a proportion of it belongs to your church which you rob and to the poor whom you defraud because of your betting tendencies and if you say that when you win the case is altered i reply yes it is altered for the worse because instead of bringing all the evil down on your head you hurl it not angrily not desperately but worse with fiendish indifference on the head of your friend and his innocent family yes madam although many men do not think it so betting is a dishonorable thing and i'm ashamed of having done it i repent mrs tipps the money burns my fingers i must return it dear me exclaimed the old lady quite unable to reply at once to such a gush but captain lee did you not say that it is mean to accept money without working for it and yet you want me to accept five hundred pounds without working for it oh monstrous sophistry cried the perplexed man grasping desperately the few hairs that remained on his polished head is there no difference then between presenting or accepting a gift and betting are there no circumstances also in which poverty is unavoidable and the relief of it honorable as well as delightful not to mention the courtesies of life whereupon giving and receiving in the right spirit and within reasonable limits are expressive of good will and conducive to general harmony besides i do not offer a gift i want to repay a debt by rights i ought to add compound interest to it for twenty years which would make it a thousand pounds now do accept it mrs tipps cried the captain earnestly but mrs tipps remained obdurate and the captain left her vowing that he would forthwith devote it as the nucleus of a fund to build a collegiate institute in cochin china for the purpose of teaching icelandic to the japanese captain lee thought better of it however and directed the fund to the purchase of frequent and valuable gifts to little joseph and his sister netta who had no scruples whatever in accepting them afterwards when joseph became a stripling the captain being a director in the grand national trunk railway procured for his protege a situation on the line
to return to our story after this long digression we left mrs tipps in the last chapter putting on her bonnet and shawl on philanthropic missions intent she had just opened the door when a handsome gentlemanly youth apparently about one or two-and-twenty with a very slight swagger in his gait stepped up to it and lifting his hat said mrs tipps i presume i bring you a letter from clatterby station another messenger should have brought it but i undertook the duty partly for the purpose of introducing myself as your son's friend i my name is gurwood what edwin gurwood about whom joseph speaks so frequently and for whom he has been trying to obtain a situation on the railway through our friend captain lee exclaimed mrs tipps yes replied the youth somewhat confused by the earnestness of the old lady's gaze but pray read the letter the telegram i fear he stopped for mrs tipps had torn open the envelope and stood gazing at it with terrible anxiety depicted on her face there is no cause for immediate fear i believe began edwin but mrs tipps interrupted him by slowly reading the telegram from joseph tipps langry station to mrs tipps eden villa clatterby dear mother netta is not very well nothing serious i hope don't be alarmed but you'd better come and nurse her she is comfortably put up in my lodgings mrs tipps grew deadly pale young gurwood knowing what the message was having seen it taken down while lounging at the station had judiciously placed himself pretty close to the widow observing her shudder he placed his strong arm behind her and adroitly sinking down on one knee received her on the other very much after the manner in which while at school he had been wont to act the part of second to pugilistic companions mrs tipps recovered almost immediately sprang up hurried into the house followed by girlwood you'll have time to catch the six-thirty train he said as mrs tipps fluttered to a cupboard and brought out a black bottle thank you yes i'll go by that you shall escort me to it please ring the bell the stout elderly female netta's nurse answered come here derby said the widow quickly i want you to take this bottle of wine to a poor sick woman i had intended to have gone myself but i am called away suddenly and shan't be back to-night you shall hear from me to-morrow lock up the house and stay with the woman to look after her if need be and now mr gurwood they were gone beyond recall before mrs derby could recover herself i never did see nothin like my poor missus she muttered there must be somethin wrong in the ed but she's a good soul with this comforting reflection mrs derby proceeded to obey her missus's commands on reaching the station mrs tipps found that she had five minutes to wait 
so she thanked gerwood for escorting her bade him good-bye and was about to step into a third-class carriage when she observed captain lee close beside her and his daughter emma who we may remark in passing was a tall dark beautiful girl and the bosom friend of netta tipps ah there is captain lee how fortunate exclaimed mrs tipps he will take care of me come mr gerwood i will introduce you to him and his daughter she turned to gerwood but that youth could not hear her remark having been forced from her side by a noiseless luggage truck on indian rubber wheels turning then towards the captain she found that he and his daughter had hastily run to recapture a small valise which was being borne off to the luggage van instead of going into the carriage along with them at the same moment the guard intervened and the captain and his daughter were lost in the crowd but edwin gurwood although he did not hear who they were had obtained a glance of the couple before they disappeared and that glance brief though it was had taken deadly effect he had been shot straight to the heart love at first sight and at railway speed is but a feeble way of expressing what had occurred poor edwin gurwood up to this momentous day woman-proof felt on beholding emma as if the combined powers of locomotive force and electric telegraphy had smitten him to the heart's core and for one moment he stood rooted to the earth or to speak more appropriately nailed to the platform recovering in a moment he made a mad dash into the crowd and spent the three remaining minutes in a wild search for the lost one it was a market day and the platform of clatterby station was densely crowded sam natley the porter and his colleagues in office were besieged by all sorts of persons with all sorts of questions and it said much for the tempers of these harassed men that in the midst of their laborious duties they consented to be stopped with heavy weights on their shoulders and while perspiration streamed down their faces answered with perfect civility questions of the most ridiculous and unanswerable description where's my wife frantically cried an elderly gentleman seizing sam by the jacket i don't know sir replied sam with a benignant smile there she is shouted the elderly gentleman rushing past and nearly overturning sam what a bore it must be to the porters to be wearied so by stupid people observed a tall stout superlative fop with sleepy eyes and long whiskers to another fop in large checked trousers yes assented the checked trousers take your seats gentlemen said a magnificent guard over six feet high with a bushy beard oh ah said the dandies getting into their compartment 
Meanwhile, Edwin Gerwood had discovered Emma. He saw her enter a first-class carriage. He saw her smile ineffably to her father. He heard the guard cry, "'Take your seats! Take your seats!' and knew she was about to be torn from him perhaps for ever. He felt that it was a last look, because how could he hope in a populous city to meet with her again? Perhaps she did not even belong to that part of the country at all, and was only passing through. He did not even know her name. What was he to do? He resolved to travel with her but it instantly occurred to him that he had no ticket he made a stride or two in the direction of the ticket office but paused remembering that he knew not her destination and that therefore he could not demand a ticket for any place in particular doors began to slam and john merritt's iron horse let off a little impatient steam just then the late passenger arrived there is always a late passenger at every train on this occasion the late passenger was a short-sighted elderly gentleman in a brown top-coat and spectacles he was accompanied by a friend who assisted him to push through the crowd of people who had come to see their friends away or were loitering about for pastime the late passenger carried a bundle of wraps the boots of his hotel followed with his portmanteau all right sir plenty of time observed sam natley coming up and receiving the portmanteau from boots which class sir eh oh third no stay second cried the short-sighted gentleman endeavouring vainly to open his purse to pay boots here hold my wraps fred his friend fred chanced at the moment to have been thrust aside by a fat female in frantic haste and edwin gurwood occupying the exact spot he had vacated had the bundle thrust into his hand he retained it mechanically in utter abstraction of mind the bell rang and the magnificent guard whose very whiskers curled with an air of calm serenity said now then take your seats make haste edwin grew desperate emma smiled bewitchingly to a doting female friend who had nodded and smiled bewitchingly to emma for the last five minutes under the impression that the train was just going to start and who earnestly wished that it would start and save her from the necessity of nodding or smiling any longer am i to lose sight of her for ever muttered gurwood between his teeth the magnificent guard sounded his whistle and held up his hand edward sprang forward pulled open the carriage door leaped in and sat down opposite emma lee the iron horse gave two sharp responsive whistles and sent forth one mighty puff the train moved but not with a jerk it is only clumsy drivers who jerk trains sometimes pulling them up too soon and having to make a needless plunge forward again or overrunning their stopping points and having to check abruptly so as to cause in timorous minds the impression that an accident has happened 
in fact much more of one's comfort than is generally known depends on one's driver's being a good one john merritt was known to the regular travellers on the line as a first-rate driver and some of them even took an interest in ascertaining that he was on the engine when they were about to go on a journey it may be truly said of john that he never started his engine at all he merely as it were insinuated the idea of motion to his iron steed and so glided softly away just as the train moved the late passenger thrust head and shoulders out of the window waved his arms glared abroad and shouted or rather spluttered my b bundles wraps rugs lost a smart burly man with acute features stepped on the footboard of the carriage and moving with the train asked what sort of rug it was eh a b blue one wit wit with interrupted the man black outside and new straps yeah yes all right sir you shall have it at the next station said the acute-faced man stepping on the platform and allowing the train to pass as the guard's van came up he leaped after the magnificent guard into his private apartment and shut the door hello davy blunt something up asked the guard yes joe turner there is something up replied the acute man leaning against the brake wheel you saw that tall good-looking fellow with the eyeglass and light whiskers i did seemed to me as if his wits had gone on with the last train and he didn't know how to overtake him i don't know about his wits said blunt but it seems to me that he's gone on in this train with somebody else's luggage the guard whistled not professionally but orally you don't say so the acute man nodded and leaning his elbows on the window-sill gazed at the prospect contemplatively in a few minutes the six thirty p m train was flying across country at the rate of thirty-five or forty miles an hour end of chapter three in which the widow holds converse with a captain makes the acquaintance of a young man and receives a telegraphic shock which ends in a railway journey recording by susan morin portland maine